So tonight um, will be the last of a four-week review series. Um, we did three weeks, and then last week I was out on sick leave, and so we'll do the fourth tonight. Um, and I know people have been in and out on them, so I'll be doing a little bit of review about the review. <laughs> and then um, the focus tonight really is how to integrate mindfulness into daily life, how to bring what we do in our formal sitting practice uh, alive in, during our day. And just to say, that's the whole purpose. It's not to go off to a cave and um, experience great samadhi and enlightenment and um, just disappear and dissolve into the universe. It's, it's really to, um, as the Zen oxherding pictures describe it, we go up to the mountain in a sense, we touch into our experience, but we come back down and live it in love and in wakefulness with our lives and our people and our activities and all that we do. So in the first three weeks of this series, um, I went through what are called some of the foundations of mindfulness. Um, How to train ourselves to be present with this whole world of sensation, some of which is pleasant, some of which is unpleasant. How to find a sense of balance and really honor this changing dance that's going on and discover really the truth of impermanence. Discover how being embodied and coming into our bodies is really a way to open to every other part of life, emotions and all perceptions. We register it through these life forms. So to bow to that. And then the second week was to open the field of awareness to include emotional lives, the moods of our heart. And how again, to really honor the range of human emotions. How not to grab onto what's pleasant and push away what's unpleasant so much as to open our awareness and our presence to be very inclusive and in the same way discover a quality of connectedness and freedom in the midst of them all. The third week we explored more how to work with thoughts. As many of you know, Meditation practice is to include but not be lost in thoughts, to open up to that sense of awareness that's not stuck in thinking but can sense thinking when it's happening so we're not ruled by the thought forms that naturally come and go. So tonight, really, it's how to bring all those foundations, this awareness of body and emotions and thinking, into our day, how to stay awake when we have such strong conditioning to go to sleep. The first night I began um, this kind of review series with um, a description of how Carl Jung um, explains the shift that many people are on on a spiritual path and how in a kind of more immature way uh, the spiritual path is conceived as going up this hierarchy towards purity towards perfection, and that there's a maturing in which we start more moving towards wholeness, towards inclusion. And uh, I'll just read a quote on that. Instead of climbing up a ladder to leave behind impurity, we turn to embrace the world in all its realness, broken, messy, vivid, alive. So daily life, right? Broken, messy, vivid, alive. All of it. 
for most people, when we explore our intention, if we woke up in the morning and said, my intention for today, besides getting a lot done like most of us, on a deep level, we all want to be as wakeful as we can. We want to be conscious and aware and kind. It's, it's a deep longing in all of us. And as we know, we have this enormous force of conditioning that makes it so that we blank out, we go into trance, we get habitual, we get very mechanical as we move through our day. So it's always interesting, especially at the end of the day, and I invite you to do so right now, just to look back and sense, where were you today? Where were you in the sense of how there for your experience? How receptive? How many moments did you, in a very direct way, touch what was true? How much were you often thought busyness, preoccupation, trying to get things done? It's useful to reflect because if we get into the habit of it, it can wake us up. Annie Dellard writes that the, day, the way we live today is the way we live our life. You know? And some people get mortified by that idea. You know, they think, oh God, I was really caught in stuff today. It's, you know, does this mean this is how it is? But the truth is, it's not like we're habitual, habitual, habitual and lost, and then all of a sudden there's this great enlightenment experience, and then we live with enormous kindness and presence. And it's, it doesn't happen like that. <laughs> so the way we live today does count. So the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths as a way of describing how it is that we get stuck and how we get free. The first two truths are, we do suffer, here's how come. We suffer because we're trying to always control our life and make it different and grab onto that and avoid that. And we get free when we learn to let be some, really be our life, not try to control our life. And then the fourth noble truth, is here's how. Here's how we do this. So in a way, when we talk about integration into daily life, it's the fourth noble truth, also described as the Eightfold Path. And I won't go over it systematically tonight. We've done that in other talks. But the beginning of the Eightfold Path, the beginning of the Buddha's teachings on how to bring practice alive in our day is wise understanding, is a certain perspective. And the essence of this perspective, that when we grip onto things, when we try to control things, when we hold on tight, we suffer. I described it uh, one week as rope burn, you know, holding onto a moving rope. It's a great description. We suffer when we try to hold on. We suffer when we resist. Right understanding is that there's an enormous freedom and joy in simple, caring presence, in letting be as is. When we allow our lives, really allow, stop controlling, we open out of a sense of a kind of separate and deficient self into a sense of connectedness. That is the magic of the practice 
that there really is a, a transformation that happens in our sense of identity from a struggling, separate being to belonging, to feeling connectedness. This is the Dalai Lama. If I am to eliminate my own sufferings, I must act in the knowledge that I exist in dependent relationships with other human beings and the whole of nature. We are interdependent. Or as Thich Nhat Hanh says, we interbe. It's a great phrase. We interbe. That all of our experience, every moment, is entirely conditioned by every other part of this universe. The, con- the experience of this moment, by all that have gathered, by the teachings of thousands of years, every moment is interwoven with the rest of life. We belong. When there is an awareness of that, of non-separation, we stop being at war. When we don't feel separate, when we're not trying hard to defend ourselves from each other, defend ourselves from parts of ourselves, there's no enemy anymore. We are all part of the same awakening universe. We stop fighting so much. A friend of mine was describing recently some of the issues in the Middle East, and he said at one point, but you know, there's very little likelihood that one country will drop a bomb, a nuclear bomb, on the other, because in contrast to our country, the trade winds in the Middle East are circular. (laughs) So, you know, nuclear fallout, you, you can't do in someone else, you do in yourself. And I thought that was um, just a beautiful metaphor for how it is, that when we really recognize our interconnectedness, we won't harm this earth and we won't harm each other because anything we harm hurts us. And we will offer love and prayer and care because that just helps the whole system. Circular trade winds. So wise understanding, really seeing this, seeing interconnectedness, inclines us towards practicing mindfulness and compassion. And the more we're mindful and compassionate, the more our minds see the truth. So wise understanding feeds into the other practices. So how do we start becoming more wakeful? How do we start opening our hearts and minds in the midst of the day? I'll name some kind of more formal strategies first. The most formal strategy, of course, is that we stop and get quiet and do small or not so small sittings during the week. Most of you know this one, that enlightenment is an accident and practice makes us accident prone. You know that one? It's good. You know, it's all just happening anyway. And so what can we do? Well, we can have the intention to pay more attention and practice in a formal way to really create a space for yourself. There's a real power to having whatever your version of altar is, a place just like concentration on the breath, a place to gather your attention geographically that in some way has beauty, has reminders to have reminders where you are in your office at home, whatever they might be. 
and it can be from any religious or naturalistic tradition, you know. For many, it's just, it's flowers. It's, that can be as beautiful as anything in the world to bring us back. To have reminders, to have a daily practice. Another very powerful way to wake up in the midst of our day is to get in the habit of establishing our intention. Just the way we did at the beginning tonight, of just for a moment quieting, and it can be right at the beginning of the day, even if you don't have time for a long formal sitting, to simply ask that question, what really matters? What is my prayer for today? It's a very powerful practice to do it at the beginning of any encounter where we know we're going to get thrown off balance. As I, I mentioned before I left, I, I spent a week being kind of sick. And when I'm feeling not so well, when my body doesn't feel good, the last thing I want to do is sit still and open to the sensations of my body. So, so I did a lot of just um, connecting with intention. You know, may this discomfort serve to awaken made open my heart. So even though I wasn't sitting for long sittings and getting absorbed and concentrated, there was a quality of intentionality that helped me to maintain some sense of perspective and balance and kindness towards myself. It's not a hard thing to do. It's a habit. And yet it's one that can be very freeing just to wake up and say, okay, what matters? That my heart be open, that I be kind. Slowing down. As most of you know, we're really a fast-paced culture. Thomas Merton put it beautifully when he said, our busyness is really violence, you know? That we violate our natural rhythms the way we're so hyper in our minds and in our bodies. To periodically try walking slowly from one room to the next. Just see what happens. Practice walking meditation, which is really walking on the earth with mindfulness of sensations of the life that's moving through us, to slow down, to pause, to take pauses. It doesn't have to be long ones, but to pause, to literally stop everything and check in. What's asking for attention this moment? To feel the breath, to let the body be an anchor time and time again through the day for coming back into wakefulness, to note what's true, So you pause and they go, okay, little tension or tightness, anxiety, excitement, planning mind, you know, just to name it so that there's more and more moments where you're not totally lost in the dream, but aware of what's happening. The final kind of more um, formal strategy I'd like to mention is to target habitual behaviors. And you can do one week on one and one week on another. And just explore what it's like to do just that one. Don't try to do everything, because you'll get overwhelmed and forget, you know. But just to see what it's like. Um, I've done it with a lot of different ones over the years, but the first one I did was brushing teeth. It's great. You know how we normally go in and brush our teeth? You know, it's this really aerobic exercise or something. To do it really slowly and conscious, you know, from putting on your toothpaste to, you know, the taste and the movement, it's, it's very sensual, it's very enlivening, it's got a lot of life to it. So I started with that and I've 
periodically come back to that one. I've done car doors, closing and opening car doors. Just that for a week, you know. It's not like you're not doing other things. I mean, you can still go to work. (laughs) Just stand there in your driveway, you know. (laughs) I'm just doing spiritual training, you know. (laughs) So pick activities that normally you go mechanical on. Washing the dishes. Thich Nhat Hanh describes having even just one, a day of mindfulness or even just a meal of mindfulness. It's very hard, if you'll notice, because we have so much neurosis and anxiety and speed around eating and doing. But to try picking areas and bringing them alive with wakefulness, it's a very beautiful way to start weaving in a sense of presence into your day. Now, the more challenging ways and places of waking up is the places where we get stuck, where we have the most emotional charge. And for each of us, we we have our own arenas, whether for some people it's um, getting stuck or getting habitual around physical problems, others it's emotional reactivity to somebody in the family, for others it's some anxiety around work. But to start beginning to wake up in the middle of those, because those are the places where we're vulnerable, where we have the most habitual armor, where we have our coping strategies to not have to feel what's going on. There's a reason that we mostly in our lives stay kind of tight and busy and preoccupied. That opening to the moment, if we really try to stop, can feel very uncomfortable, very intense, very overwhelming. Like we really want to say, oh, later for meditation, I just want to get something done. You know that feeling? Because it's very hard to just sit down and be with life in the moment. Yet that's the times that we most need to train ourselves to stop. We all have a basic conflict, our two different forces running at odds. One force in us loves life and wants to live more fully. The other force is afraid to open to life, is afraid it's too much, it's overwhelming, I'll get drowned later, first this, you know. And that's the, it's identical around intimacy, that we, most of us, are aware of really longing for intimate contact, that we want intimacy in our lives, we want to feel that quality of closeness. And we do all sorts of things to sabotage it. And you can reflect just for a moment, if you will, you know, on someone that's close to you in your life that matters a lot. And your intent, your aspiration for closeness, for connection, knowing that you'll die, they'll die, and don't you wish that there could be some beautiful connection this lifetime. And just to acknowledge that and also to be able to look at the ways that you distance, the ways you get habitual, preoccupied, judgmental, defensive. That we heal when we can include both, both acknowledge and honor our longing to live fully and also acknowledge the powerful conditioning in us to get armored, to distance. 
So choosing these areas where it matters to us to be more alive, but that are difficult, where we feel that we get stuck. And we begin by just starting to realize the ways that we judge and resist. Oh, okay, so with this person, my habitual way is to act busy, or to judge them, or to judge myself, or to notice when we're doing certain activities, the ways that we tighten up or contract. Recently, I read an article about a Zen Roshi, a Zen priest. His name is Bernie Glassman, and some of you might have heard of him. He's very well known. He's in the New York area. And he is kind of a representative of engaged Buddhism, of social activism, bringing the principles into practice and helping in the world. And um, he says that he, his practice is to go to the areas that are shadowy, where there's a lot of pain and suffering, working with AIDS and homelessness and others. And he says it helps him to face the shadows, the parts of his own being that he's pushed away. And recently he started a, um, an order called the Peacemakers, and they're kind of villages around the world, and some of them are geographic and some are not, but really dedicated to bringing alive compassion and action, bringing these principles of heart and mindfulness into the world. And he says it's based on three, three kind of fundamental ways of being peacemakers. And the first is to approach difficulties, and these are the difficulties around us and within us, with what's called don't know mind. In other words, to put down our ideas of what is this, what I should do, what I could do, and just have beginner's mind. Have that openness, that freshness, that courage to say, okay, let me feel this in a very direct, immediate way without all the layers of presuppositions about what this is about. That's the first part, don't know mine. The second part he calls bearing witness. That means in a very direct and immediate way to just open to how it all is. Thich Nhat Hanh describes it, he says, darling, I see your suffering. To really bear witness to the suffering, the struggles within our own being, within others. And the third is to move towards wholeness, to include and to heal with kindness. And I think those are very um, universal and beautiful descriptions of the ways that we do heal. To put aside all our presuppositions, to be fresh in the moment, to bear witness, and then to open with our hearts to what's going on. Now, it's very hard to do that when we're caught in one of our top ten, you know, when we're really reactive in a personal way. And we all have them. You can, if you have a situation in mind right now where, where it's challenging in your life, frequently it's interpersonal, where you just keep on cycling through the same reactivity. It's very hard to stop, to put aside all your ideas and judgments about what this is, to bear witness, to really be with what it brings up, and to have that intent to include with a healing heart. It's radical to do that, and yet if we talk about how to integrate mindfulness into daily life, it's really going to those places where we get most locked in and defended and stopping, pausing, feeling what's going on. 
Pema Chodron in uh, Start Where You Are describes very beautifully that practice of pausing and, and being with things before reacting. And she says it's like, you know, it's a way of dying because you're letting go of all your habitual ways of responding to a situation. And you're kind of opening to the mystery. Okay, what's really happening? It, it inspired me. I read it about two years ago. And I was, two years ago, really looking into my relationships with different members of my family. And one of my biggest stuck places was with my sister that's, she's 20 months younger than I am. So we've been very close and we're very near in the same age and our, our stuff is very locked in. So I decided to see if I could bring that into our encounters. And one of our routines for my lifetime has been, she'll ask me something, some favor, and it'll put me into a totally defensive and angry and guilty mode, you know, because I won't feel like I can do what she wants me to do. So I remember one phone call she called and she asked me a favor that was, (laughs) there was no way I could do it. And normally what I would do is go right into this whole litany of just how busy I am, because I'm just very busy, you know and on and on, but I didn't. I just said, well, just a second, and I, and I stopped. And we don't always have the luxury to do this, I want to say. I know we can't always stop and pause, but I just stopped, and I got really in touch with how much it set off in me a sense of deficiency. And this, you know, life theme of uh, never re- afraid I'm going to let people down, never really being able to come through. And then, you know, once I got in touch with that, I, it made me more tender towards myself, so I didn't have to be so angry at her because normally I'd get angry at her for triggering off bad feelings in me, you know. So I didn't have to be so angry. So when I then said that I, I said the same thing. I said, no, it wasn't in a way that said no and pushed her away. And um, sometimes I can and sometimes I can't. But it's an amazing practice to target the areas that were very habitually reactive and stop, not talk or if our typical way of doing it is to freeze and not talk, then to try to find our voice, but to do it differently and with mindfulness and presence. Rumi writes of night travelers who search the darkness instead of running from it, a companionship of people willing to know their own fear, whether it is the fear of a personal encounter or the fear of death. What we're talking about is opening to vulnerability. Most of us organize our lives so as not to have to feel our vulnerability, feel how things are impermanent, how things are changing, feel our own mortality. We've designed our lives to stay busy and stay armored so we don't have to feel that. And yet the path of awakening to really be here fully is to open to what Pema Chodron calls the soft spot, that place where we are scared or we are wanting, to be really willing to open to that. There's no way around it. If we want to connect with life and feel a sense of wholeness, we need to connect with where that vulnerability is with kindness. It's called bodhicitta, this awakening heart that awakens when we open to what's difficult, that awakens when we're willing to face our lives. Much of what we're facing 
is that everything's going, that everything that we want to hold on to is passing, that we can't protect ourselves from that really. We're opening to mortality, that these bodies and minds are changing, our hair color keeps changing, you know, that everyone we love will lose, that everything that has form has the nature to dissolve, to lose its form. It's all happening, and there's nothing we can hold on to. And there is a way in which, really, our training and our practice is to begin to see that and to face the fear we have that comes around that. I just went to a um, training this weekend, a, a therapy kind of training, where a lot of the focus was working with fear, working with fear that, uh, from big traumas and from small traumas, and yet we were having this conference in this very sanitized, sterilized hotel in New York, and it, it seemed rather staid, but then all of a sudden uh, these fire alarms went off, and there was a really big fire in the hotel. <laughs> and it's like every so we really got this in vivo experiential thing. <laughs> Not only that, long after the fire was over, something went wrong with their alarm system, so it kept going off. <laughs> it was a really interesting training. We can't control what happens in this life. We have certain areas we can, and we'll do what we want with them in a playful or creative way, but the big stuff we can't control. And life keeps offering opportunities that we recognize that. So our challenge in day-to-day life is to sense where we're defending, where we're avoiding, and really open to that vulnerability, that awareness that we are mortal. To be wakeful means to see this. It's not something, well, way down then, but now it's really got to pay the bills. It's pay the bills and know our time could be up any moment. The teachers that most inspire me, that I've sat with, are the ones that have this very imminent sense of here now, gone tomorrow, and really cherishing the moment. This was an excerpt of a a high school graduation speech that was given uh, by a boy who died in 1990 at age 18 from cancer. So I guess he wrote, he gave it about a year earlier. I guess I used to think that life is like a long highway. I was just cruising along on what I thought at the time to be an endless road. I, however, got stuck with a faulty engine, and it forced me to stop cruising and to pull over onto the shoulder and start walking. And it was once I started walking that I began to see all the beauty that was only a colorful blur before. And once I began to walk, the wind didn't blow through my hair, because I didn't have any, and instead of music, there were the songs of birds and crickets to be heard. But once I started to walk and once I took off my shades, I began to see things clearly for the first time. I began to see that success should not be measured by grades or dollar signs, but by how often you laugh and by how many people you can make smile in a day. I began to see that once you are at peace with God, peace with your fellow man comes as well as peace with yourself. And I began to see that our earthly highway not only has plenty of detours and potholes, but it isn't nearly as long as I once thought. So this is true for all of us. And 
it's a real powerful wake-up to take some time to reflect, the way Stephen Levine did in his book, A Year to Live, to really recognize we don't have so long. And are we living our life with fullness? When we do that, when we sense that we can cherish the moment and that it's coming and going, there's a real freedom. There's an opening of perspective. There's a freedom. There's a wisdom that comes with it. I read this about Oscar Wilde, that when he was dying, he was going in and out of consciousness, he was heard to murmur, this wallpaper is killing me. One of us has got to go. (laughs) I just wanted an excuse to tell you that. (laughs) But it does have to do with the freedom, you know, and how you're relating to your own being's mortality. So showing up for life for what is messy and beautiful and out of control has been called the path of bodhicitta, the path of awakening. It's showing up for it all. I'm talking about the difficulties. But if we have the habit of showing up for the difficulties, we'll have the habit of being there for what's beautiful, what's joyful. Our hearts don't just open and close on cue. It's like either we're moving through life and there's a general openness and receptivity, or there's an armoring, and we don't just drop it when all of a sudden things are lovely and sweet. Resisting and controlling keeps us small and armored. Pema Chodron has a really lovely way of describing spiritual awakening. She says, it's not a journey to the top of a mountain. In the process of discovering bodhicitta, that's the awakened heart, the journey goes down. Instead of transcending the suffering of all creatures, we move toward the turbulence, the intensity, the mystery. We move down and down and down into these bodies, into our lives. And with us move millions of others, our companions in awakening from fear. At bottom we discover water, the healing water of bodhicitta. Right down there in the thick of things, we discover the love that will not die. There's two things about that that I think are really beautiful. One is that we really open, awaken by touching what's real, that there's no way around it, that the more moments of our day we can connect with what's real and true, the more our hearts and minds awaken. And secondly, that we're doing this together, It's not a separate self that's struggling through the fears to finally feel the freedom, but we're doing it in relationship. We're doing it together. And it's for that reason that the Buddha describes Sangha community as one of the most basic foundations of spiritual practice. That we gather, that we talk, that we share, that we feel, that we be intimate, wakes us up. Because if not, if we're having this great sitting practice all by ourselves or we're off in the cave, it reinforces a sense of a separate self that's working hard and doing real well or not doing real well, but still a separate self. We don't learn the truth of our connectedness. So what many people I know are finding in, in relationship, in therapy, in sitting with each other in meditation, is a sense of becoming more real more real in the contact. And that means in the messy contact and in the delicious contact, but more real. A more sense of a, of a wholeness and less identified with old stories. 
we don't get rid of our stories if we think we're doing it by ourselves, because they keep getting reinforced. It's when we interact in an open and wakeful way, when we have the courage to just stop and be with what's true, that we begin to open outside of our stories. Mark Twain said that the worst things in my life never actually happened. (laughs) (laughs) Really, we, we have a huge drama going on in our minds most of the time. So when we begin to face what's true, when we face our fears, there's a natural courage and freedom that allows us to be more who we are. And I think one of one of what's really moved me is recently I had a client that came in and she said, this whole path for me is just becoming more of who I really am. And then she said, I don't understand how it is that some people could think they wish they could go back to being 18. Now, if anyone here is 18, it's not like 18, you know. Just that the more we are with our lives, the more real we feel ourselves to be. There's a sense of really cherishing that sense of becoming who we are. So here's a story for you. This is um, about a 15-year-old Hispanic guy from Los Angeles. And he grew up in a violent neighborhood and uh, with gangs since he was 13. And he was hardened, and he was mean, and he had, a, he had a real edge. In fact, they say, his world was so rough that acting like the baddest and the meanest was the only way he saw to survive. So. However it happened, his friends or relatives sent him to Boulder, Colorado one summer and um, to give him a break from, from life in L.A. And the people there were loosely affiliated with the Buddhist community there that uh, Chogyam Trungpa, some of you might know of him, had uh, started. So one day he came to an event where Trungpa Rinpoche was, and I'll read you what it says. It says that Trungpa Rinpoche sang the Shambhala anthem. Now, this was an awful experience for the rest of us because, for some reason, he loved to sing the Shambhala anthem in a high-pitched, squeaky, and cracked voice. (laughs) So this particular event was outside, and as Rinpoche sang into the microphone and the sound traveled for miles across the plains, this boy, this boy Juan, who was there, broke down and started to cry. Now, everyone else was feeling awkward or embarrassed, but Juan started to cry. Later, he said he cried because he had never seen anyone that brave. (laughs) He said, that guy, he's not afraid to be a fool. (laughs) But for a guy from a gang, you know, everything is to not not look dumb, not look vulnerable, not be a fool. So here is the leader of all these people letting himself be who he was. And that turned out to be a major turning point in his life because he realized he didn't have to be afraid to be a fool or to be real or to be who he was either. All that persona and chip on the shoulder was guarding his soft spot. He could let them go. Because he was so sharp and bright, he got the message and his life turned around. Um, So now he got his education. He's back in L.A. helping other kids. such a beautiful story because that's the way it happens to us, that we all really want to be free to be who we are. We don't want to go around containing it and misrepresenting or pretending. We want to be real. And when somebody models that, gives us permission, um, by being human, you know, there's a real freedom that's possible.
So just to review, to bring alive in our daily life, there's the formal ways of really going through the day and kind of disrupting our routines by slowing down, by noting what's happening, by pausing, by establishing our intentionality to be awake, by taking sitting practice into our homes and really having a space and really quieting down some. And then in a broader sense, there's the willingness to be with what's difficult, to break out of our reactivities by stopping and being with, bearing witness, opening our hearts to what's there. What makes it possible to be inclusive, what makes it possible when it's really difficult, is a quality of kindness. There's no way that we can be with what's most challenging in our lives if our hearts aren't soft, if there isn't a real quality of compassion. Life's too intense, too difficult. Some of you know the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. Remember that? So how we make room for what's difficult, how we have the courage to stop, is by really offering a lot of kindness to our own being. For most of us, it can't just be offering it to ourselves. We need to be actively held in relationship where that kindness also is a container. Again, from this weekend, I did this training working with trauma. All of us have been traumatized, not all in the big ways. Not all of us have been sexually abused or in war, but we've all had the kind of traumas that have made us afraid to be, afraid to touch into certain pockets of experience, which means we all need a sense of safety and a sense of of love and compassion as a container to begin to gradually open those pockets to the light of day, to the light of awareness and mindfulness. For most of us, To create an atmosphere that's safe enough, we need to let go of our judgments of ourself. And if there's any one practice that I see most of us doing more and more as we grow on the path, it's to see through our judgments, to to not be quite so much believing our judgments of ourselves. But it's pretty insidious. Our judgments about not good enough, doing something wrong, am wrong, It's such a familiar layer of energy in our being that we sometimes don't even realize it's happening. So it can become a very radical thing to intend to see judgment, to note judging mind, and to intend to let go. That doesn't mean not to wisely discriminate between what's skillful and unskillful, what helps, what hurts, but not to hold this kind of condemnation or punishing judgment that we do to really have that intent to accept ourselves. Imagine for a moment if you really could accept yourself just as you are. And just try to imagine if right now you said, okay, right now I accept myself just as I am. Just close your eyes for a sense and for a second and sense, okay, I accept this body how it is, both the sensations and appearance of this body accept this mind, this personality, accept this life, this lifestyle, my work, my friends, the dear ones, the challenging ones. 
Accept the mood of this moment, whatever it is. If we can even get a glimmer of what it would be like to truly open and accept our beings as we were, that glimmer inspires us to live in that way. To befriend the parts of our being that we've habitually pushed away. Abraham Lincoln writes, I conquer my enemies by making them my friends. To take what's most difficult in us and truly embrace to draw a circle that includes. We don't find happiness by punishing, condemning, fixing, controlling. We don't find happiness by being better than each other, prettier, smarter, more successful. Our happiness comes from feeling connected, belonging, in love. This is a story by Dan Clark about the Special Olympics. He writes, I saw a beautiful example of kindness in 1968 during the Special Olympics track and field meet. One participant was Kim Peek, a brain-damaged, severely handicapped boy, racing in the 50-yard dash. Kim was racing against two other athletes with cerebral palsy. They were in wheelchairs. Kim was the lone runner. As the gun sounded, Kim moved quickly ahead of the other two. 20 yards ahead and 10 yards from the finish line, he turned to see how the others were coming. The girl had turned her wheelchair around and was stuck against the wall. The other boy was pushing his wheelchair backward with his feet. Kim stopped, went back, and pushed the little girl across the finish line. The boy in the wheelchair going backwards won the race. The girl took second. Kim lost. Or did he? The crowd that gave Kim a standing ovation didn't think so. There's a deep sense of freedom that comes when we stop defending, stop grabbing, but rather find that sense of kindness and presence where this moment is enough. This moment, just how how it is, has everything. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, this moment can be the grounds of awakening. When we begin to rest in that quality of attention through our day, when we stop so much trying to make things different, there comes a real natural sense of gratitude, a very natural quality of appreciation. Life arises and it passes and we're not holding on, trying to make it different. It's when there's that non-clinging that we can really appreciate life, that we can really find a sense of um, just how awesome and incredible it is. We have it as children. Children grab and children push away, but there is that sense of beginner's mind that really is open to how it all is and how it's changing. This is a story some of you old-timers know, but I'll share it with you you that are here new because it's so wonderful. Um, Maurice Sendak was asked about um, any cases, any stories he wanted to tell from his experience, and he said, here's one. He got, there was a little boy that sent him a charming card with a little drawing, and he Loved it. Sendak loved it. So he answers all his children's letters, but he writes, sometimes very hastily, this one I lingered over. I sent him a postcard, and I drew a picture of a wild thing on it. I wrote, Dear Jim, I loved your card. Then I got a letter back from his mother, and she said, Jim loved your card so much he ate it. (laughs) 
<laughs> that to me was one of the highest compliments I've ever received. <laughs> he didn't care that it was an original drawing or anything. He saw it, he loved it, he ate it. <laughs> So when we have that quality of openness, we do find a sense of gratitude. And for most of us, it's really for the simple things. Um, many times in workshops or classes, and now with my family at Thanksgiving, we do the kind of a ritual of just naming what we're grateful for. And it's so much fun. I mean, if you've done that, and I'm sure many of you have done it, just, just intending to name that. And then you just start getting more and more into sensing these simple but wonderful things. The wind chimes, and, or, you know, the, for me, the laughter of my son. And it's things that if you try to hold on to, you try to make different, you lose gratitude. It becomes attachment. It becomes fear, because you can lose. So it's that lightness of letting things come and go and just feeling gratitude for what is. It said that bodhicitta, this awakening heart, is experienced in the moments that we just care. Not grasp, not resist, just care. That we see the color of the sky, the blue of the sky, or hear the sound of the birds, or feel a sense of that specialness or connection with someone we care about, or music, or sadness, or joy. It's just being with life that awakens our hearts and minds. I'll read you one more story that um, I, I read Ann Landers. So this is from Ann Landers. Uh, this is a letter that was sent to her. At 86, Rose and I live by the rules of the elderly. If the toothbrush is wet, you've brushed your teeth. <laughs> if the bedside radio is warm in the morning, you left it on all night. <laughs> if you're wearing one brown shoe and one black shoe, you have a pair just like it somewhere in the closet. <laughs> Try not to mind when a friend tells you on your birthday that a case of prune juice has been donated in your name to a retirement home. <laughs> I stagger when I walk, and small boys follow me, making bets on which way I'll go next. <laughs> this upsets me. Children shouldn't gamble. <laughs> Like most elderly people, we spend many happy hours in front of the TV set. We rarely turn it on. <laughs> the simple things, right? We really treasure them. When we relax through our practice, through our day, out of grabbing, out of holding, out of avoiding, and are simply present, there really is joy. There really is freedom. And there's a natural generosity. There's a sense of abundance. It comes, it goes, there's nothing to hold on to. And it's natural to give, and it's natural to receive. This relaxing and opening to sacred presence is what we practice in daily life through relationships with our own body, with each other, with the weather, with all of nature. The beauty of the path is that we're not waiting. There's nothing to wait for. There's no do this, this, and this, and then something happens. It's possible this moment to just let go of our stories and open to this mysterious, awesome, scary, beautiful life that's just happening. So I'll close with um, 
just a very brief part of a poem from Mary Oliver. She writes, to live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Why don't we just sit for a few moments, if you will. Letting these moments be a pause, be an opportunity to bring kind awareness to just what is. There is nothing to do. Just gently open to the life within and around with presence, with care. May our practice of presence, of awakening heart-mind, be of benefit to all beings. May all beings be filled with loving-kindness. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free. In closing, as we opened with just the simple chanting of Om, feeling your heart and chanting from the heart. Let's inhale together, please.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.